Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 18 through chapter 2, 5. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the word did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's that great scene in the movies Incredible two, Incredibles 2. You've seen it. Uh, if you haven't, you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's a good movie. You need to see it. It's about an everyday family uh, that has superpowers. And Incredibles 2, the second one that came out, was basically featuring the new addition to the family, little baby Jack-Jack. And the, the question in the movie is, does Jack-Jack, little baby Jack-Jack, have superpowers? And if he does, what are they? And so there's this scene in the movie where Jack-Jack makes his appearance, so to speak. And that happens, he, he wrestles a raccoon. He fights a raccoon, little baby still sucking on a pacifier. And so the scene is, he's fighting this raccoon, and he ends up beating the raccoon, sending the raccoon away with tail tucked between his legs because he used his superpowers. Well, his dad, Mr. Incredible, was in the house. He had fallen asleep, and he hears all the commotion, and he wakes up. And he looks out, and he goes after his son, and he sees what's happening, right? And then it, and towards the end of the scene, there's that great scene where he goes out, and you know, the raccoon has run away, and he picks his son up, and he looks at him, and he says, you have powers, right? Yeah, baby. And he's just thrilled, right? That his son just beat a raccoon and didn't get scratched in the process. 
That kind of power, superhero power, that gets highlighted in a movie like that, is what typically we think of in our world when it comes to power. We think of the spectacular. We speak of the, the miraculous. We, we speak of exerting force over something. We speak of the power of machinery, the power of an army. The, that's the kind of power our world knows, and it's the kind of power that the first Corinthian church knew in the first century. Worldly power, and yet Paul comes along here and he describes the power of the cross of Jesus Christ very differently. And the power of the cross is so different that the world sees it as folly. In fact, when Jesus was exerting that power as he hung on the cross, the world was mocking him. The world was laughing at him. So the question becomes, in a world where we understand power uh, culturally a certain way, in a message like we're going to see here where Paul talks about the power of the cross very differently, the question becomes then what is the power of the cross? What is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ? We're going to see that it's the power to save, it's the power to bring honor, and it's the power to communicate authentically. So let's start with the power to save. All of this gets set up at the end of chapter 1. Right? End of verse 17 lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then Paul's going to go on now and describe what is then the power of the cross of Christ. And so verse 18, the power to save. He starts in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see what he's doing there? He's, he's contrasting power with folly. Now, what is Folly. This is so important to understand because this word appears over and over in this passage as either folly or foolish or foolishness. Simply put, it's this. Folly is a striving or a journeying which leads nowhere. So it is. Folly is a striving or an achieving that is ineffective and empty. And so Paul says, you've got power against folly, which is an ineffective striving. And then in verse 18, you have perishing versus being saved. Paul's talking about salvation here. He's talking about salvation. You go down to verse 21, you see it again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So he's talking about being saved which he defines in verse 21 as knowing God, not just knowing about God, not just believing he exists, but personally knowing God. That's what salvation is. And it's, the, and it's the separation from God. It's the world's separation from God, mankind's separation from God because of sin that has led to all of the sin and brokenness and perishing in our world. And so Paul is talking about salvation and what it means how we obtain it. And he defines power in the process and he defines folly in the process. When we talk about salvation, let me just make this clear. Salvation is about knowing God. Personally, coming into a relationship with God, but that's not it. Salvation is much bigger than that. Salvation, being saved, is not just individuals being saved, but an entire world being saved. 
the world being made right, making right all that sin has made wrong. That's salvation. And what Paul's talking about in this passage is a wisdom of the world or a human wisdom that through the centuries has taken approaches to achieving this salvation. He defines it. He says it in, in verse 19. He's quoting Isaiah 29, 14. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Verse 20, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, there's a wisdom of the world that tries to make right all that sin has made wrong. If you're here this morning and you've been in Christ for 20 years, if you're not in Christ yet, maybe this is the first time you've stepped foot in a church. Let me tell you the common ground that you have with everyone in here. That is, everyone here knows this world is broken. This world is not right. And recently, even most recently in our country, that has just come to living color. The world is not right. And so we all are looking for ways to set it right. Paul says there's, there's, there's a way of the world, which is this human wisdom. And over the centuries, it has unfolded. And it's led to the various world religions that we have that are attempts at trying to make right all that sin has made wrong in this world. So you've got Islam, started in the seventh century by the prophet Muhammad, who received a, a revelation from, from Allah, right, the God of Islam. You've got Hinduism that has that established over the years a system of belief around nirvana, which is that state of perfection, and that you get reincarnated life after life, rising to a new, new level until you finally reach nirvana. There's, there's secular humanism, which we don't necessarily call a religion, but it is. And that's really our, the heart of what we are today. And humanism says human beings are good. They're good. And if we can just use some rational wisdom and some rational thought, we can fix the problems in our world. That's humanism. Paul in this passage is lumping all of those together and saying they're folly. And by that, meaning they're ineffective. They can't make right what sin has made wrong in our world. They cannot accomplish salvation. And he sums them up. He sums up all these religious approaches to making things right in our world in verse 22. Look at it. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews and Greeks in the first century, that was the entire known world. That wasn't just two ethnic categories and there were a bunch more. In the first century, you were either a Jew or you were a Greek or a Gentile. So Paul's saying, basically, there are two approaches, two human approaches to salvation or to making things right in this world. He says the, Jew demand, the Jews demand signs. God's chosen people, right? And we see in the Gospels, they demand signs. They're demanding wonders from Jesus. They want Jesus to have these spectacular displays of, displays of raw power because they expected a Messiah to come to exert his sheer force to crush the enemy. They demanded signs. The Greeks, everyone else, non-Jew, everyone else in the first century demanded a, 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 a wisdom. And that is, they, they were seeking this kind of, this knowledge, this secret knowledge, this enlightenment uh, that, would, that would make the world a better place. That's really where today humanism falls or, or what we would call the, the self-help movement. Right? That, that basically says, if you do A, B, C, you'll have a better life. Or if you, if you live this formula that is written out in this book, you'll have a better life. 
right? That, that's, that's humanism. That's, that's seeking wisdom, right, to accomplish salvation. And so Paul summarizes all these and says they're folly, meaning they're ineffective. So what is effective at, comp- at accomplishing salvation? Look at verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now listen, to understand why it was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, you gotta understand the cultural view of that form of execution in the first century, especially in Rome. In Roman society, of which Corinth was a Roman city, death on a cross was disgusting. It was brutal. It was shameful. It was, it was hateful. In fact, it was, and I, and I say this because we in our time today, I think we lose sight of how offensive the cross was. We think of it as what Jesus just died on a cross. Yes, he did. But that form of execution in that day was brutal. It was intended to strip the person of their dignity. It was intended to bring shame and humiliation on them. You know, we think of our forms of execution in our society today here. And, 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 and to every degree, the dignity of the person is, is kept. Think about lethal injection. No pain, no suffering, just that's it. Very different in Roman society. They wanted these criminals to be shamed, humiliated, suffer. And that's why it was so offensive that, that the, the death on the cross wasn't even talked about in polite conversation. You didn't talk about it. Because not even a Roman would be subject to that death and not even a respectable criminal. It was left for the nobodies and the nothings of the world. That's how offensive the cross was. Now you can see why it was a stumbling block to the Jews. That word stumbling block, is, 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 it's where we get the word scandal from. I mean, the Jews that were expecting some Messiah to come and exert his force and crush the enemies. You can see why the cross was a, it was a scandal. Our Messiah would never be relegated to a nothing and a nobody. Be put through the offense of the cross. You can see why it was uh, folly to the Gentiles or the Greeks. It was just sheer nonsense. I mean, it's just nonsense to think that the world's gonna be fixed <laughs> by a man who is crucified with all the other nothings and nobodies in the world. That's not gonna fix the world. That's folly. And so it's entirely understandable to see why the Jews and the Gentiles were offended by the cross and either thought it was a scandal or thought it was just absolutely nonsense that the world would be saved through Christ crucified. Now, what Paul is saying here is that's obvious, but what Paul is hinting at here is that there's even people in this young Corinthian church, believers in this young Corinthian church who had moved away from the centrality of the cross. Remember what I said about Corinth. It was a place of status. It, would have, it was a place of appearance. It was a place of public boasting, self-promotion, social media on steroids. It was you put something out there that, that made you reputable, successful, having status. Now you can see why attaching yourself to something so offensive 
In that culture, as death on, to death on a cross, you can see why they started to move away from the centrality of the cross and possibly onto a more triumphant religion, something more spirit-centered, something more positive, living a better life. And we see some similarities today that we can turn Christianity into a religion of just being a better person. Let's stay positive, right? And we can kind of subtly move away from the offense, the deep offense of the cross of Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor in Nazi Germany. He, he was eventually killed for his faith in Jesus Christ by Adolf Hitler. He said this, if it is I who say where God will be, that's human wisdom, right? If it is I who say where God will be, I will always find there a God who corresponds to me and is acceptable to me. But if it is God who says where he will be, the place is the cross of Christ. There is no other way to salvation than the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you're seeking and you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about, you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, I will tell you that the only way to be saved from your sin and brokenness, the only way to be given eternal life, the only way to be forgiven is at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, recognizing that Jesus took on that offensive, vulgar, disgusting form of execution for you and for your sin because he loves you. For those that have been in Christ for many years, this is a call to never move away from the centrality of the cross, to never move away from sin and repentance and the, and the offense of the cross onto a better life and to living better and to more prosperity and success, that you meet God at the cross of Jesus Christ because that's where his power is displayed and that's where he is revealed. So when you do bow the knee to Jesus, and you do put yourself at the foot of the cross, what do you receive? What do you receive? And that brings us to our second point, the power of the cross, not only to save, but to bring honor, to bring honor. Look at verses 26 to 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Corinth, the city of Corinth, was an honor-shame culture. And by that I mean that if you were a Corinthian, you did everything possible to avoid shame in your life. And the way to avoid shame was, as I've said, to project or to put yourself out there as being reputable, having a reputation or status, to put out an appearance. Like that was the way you avoided shame, was to, was to buy into these worldly standards, that if you're wealthy, if you're successful, if you've got a good reputation, and if you've got a status about you, then you avoid shame. You see what, what Jesus does? You see what the cross does, what Paul's doing here? He absolutely flips it upside down. He's taking this whole shame that was deeply embedded in that culture and he flips it upside down with the cross of Christ, right? Saying that the wise are brought down, are shamed, that the downcast are lifted up. 
that the proud are brought low, that the downcast are lifted up. Because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. At the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, the ground is level. Look at verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You see what's happening there? The proud are brought down, the downcast are brought up. Why? Because the cross proclaims a completely different source of honor. You see, we as human beings crave honor. We crave dignity. We crave knowing that we're worth something. And so we long for honor. And the world says, here's how you get honor. Right? Here's how you know you're worth something. You're significant. You've got dignity to you. Get wealthy. Be successful. Have a reputation. Have a status about you. And the cross of Jesus Christ takes those worldly standards and absolutely turns them upside down. The cross of Jesus Christ levels the ground because the cross says that there is a completely different source of honor that doesn't come through human effort. There's a source of honor, what your heart is longing for, that does not, become, does not come from your effort, does not come from your performance. Where's it come from? Look at verse 30. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, the honor that your heart is longing for is a gift. It's a gift that comes from the crucified Christ, now the risen Christ. And it's a gift that gives you, number one, righteousness. What's that mean? That means a new record. Your moral record, which is, which is failure, it's sin, gets replaced with a new record of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Brand new record, spotless, blameless, holy. You get a new record. Second, sanctification. Talked about it last week. It means to be set apart. You get a new position. You're set apart for service to God. You have a new position. Third, redemption. Redemption is about being bought, right? You're bought out of slavery. You get a new status. You're no longer a slave. You're a beloved child. New record, new position, new status. All this comes through the gift of Jesus Christ. It's a new source of honor. Anthony Bourdain, he was the renowned celebrity chef, the author, television personality, who tragically this past summer took his life. But before his death, he said something that was very profound. And I'm going to paraphrase it. Being a celebrity is the most isolating because you are loved without being known. Say that again. Being a celebrity is the most isolating because you are loved without being known. If you seek your honor apart from God and in your own effort and performance, you will arrive at the same conclusion in this statement that Anthony Bourdain arrived at. And the reason is 
is because if you seek your honor and your worth and your significance according to worldly standards, wealth, status, success, reputation, what you do is you project something out there that people fall in love with. You project an appearance of what you're trying to be so that people will love you. And if you somehow achieve that, you'll, you'll get some sort of surface honor but it's most isolating because you know yourself. You know inwardly who you really are. And so it's incredibly isolating because you realize people have fallen in love with what I put out there, but they don't know me. And so there's this inward shame that builds because the question becomes, if they really knew me, would they really love me? Would they really honor me? And the quick answer is probably not. So I'll continue to put a projection out there of who I'm not really, whether it's through social media, whatever it may be. The cross of Jesus Christ destroys projections. It destroys appearances. And it gives you an unchanging honor that comes from the one who loved you so much that he would go through a form of execution in the first century that was disgusting and offensive. He loved you that much that he didn't want you to go through that because of your sin. And so coming to the cross of Jesus Christ is letting go of the projections, letting go of the appearances, letting go of the tireless work it is to put something out there about who you are and being able to rest in who you are as a child of God bought by the king by his death on the cross and receiving an honor that will never change no matter what circumstantially happens in your life. And that is the honor that your heart craves. So now how does this connect with boasting? See, Paul, at the end of this section in verse 31, he gets to the end of describing this reversal of standards and values and the reversal of shame and honor, where your honor really comes from. And he says in verse 31, here's the so that. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, we talk about boasting, and we typically talk about bragging. Now, it is that, but it's much deeper. To boast, boasting is an attempt to establish your confidence as a person. An attempt to establish your reputation, your worth as a person. So we can boast in all kinds of things. You can boast in your looks. You can boast in your weight. You can boast in your career. You can boast in your friend circle. You can boast in how many Twitter followers you have. You can boast in how many Facebook friends you have. Uh, you, you can boast in a myriad of things. And, we, and there's a whole spectrum of what we can boast in to establish our confidence as a person. When we boast, what we're looking for is affirmation. We're looking for applause. Think about the, uh, the recent rescue mission of those Thai soccer players that were trapped in that cave that the world was just fixated on. I remember watching footage at the end when they were bringing out the last player or coach, I forget who was last out, but there was a crowd gathered at the opening of the cave. And when, when those divers who had spent days pulling off an astounding rescue that they lost no one, still, it's amazing. When those last divers 
came out of the cave with that last person. The applause that erupted from that crowd that was gathered was unbelievable. In fact, I remember watching it and, and it, almost, it almost sent chills up my spine because what's happening in that moment? There's this applause. It's a roar of honor and respect, right? For these divers sacrificed their lives, right? To rescue these boys out of that cave. Ephesians 2 talks about Jesus Christ after his rescue mission, coming to earth to rescue his children and then ascending back into heaven. It says that he was seated at the right hand of God in the first century when an army would go out to conquer another country. Whoever the general was that led that army, if they were victorious, when, when he would come back, that general would be placed in the seat of honor. And what we see here is Jesus Christ in Ephesians 2, after he had rescued his world and his children ascends back into heaven and is seated at the place of honor. And I imagine that when Jesus entered back into heaven, there was a loud roar from the heavenly beings, from the angels, from all gathered, a loud roar of the hero who had come back and had rescued. Here's what's so astounding about Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.6 says this. We, those in Christ, have, have been raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You know what that means? That means that in Christ, you are seated in the place of honor in Christ before the Father. And the loud roar that Jesus heard when he had accomplished his mission, an applause of honor, is the same applause that you get from the Father in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you right now, you should be shocked to hear that. Because maybe this past week, maybe your past year of living has been one where you, you don't hear the applause. What you hear is the laughter and the mocking and the shame of your life and your sin and your brokenness. The power of the cross of Jesus Christ is that you receive the applause and the roar of the Father. That honor is yours in Christ. The power of the cross to save, the power of the cross to bring honor. And then finally, the power of the cross to communicate authentically. Look at verses one and two of chapter two. Paul says, when I came to you brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does he mean by this? I think what Paul means is this. He did not come preaching the gospel with manipulative language. He didn't come spinning the truth. He didn't come trying to craft things to manipulate people. He came preaching Christ and Christ crucified, even if it was offensive. You see how this works in this culture where the cross was so offensive in a city that was all about appearance. For Paul to come and preach such an offensive cross, he probably didn't get a lot of applause. And Paul says, I refuse to tweak the message. 
I refuse to get away from the cross or to kind of soften the offense because this culture didn't, really didn't like the offense of the cross. Paul says, no, I didn't tweak it. I didn't manipulate. Now, you all aren't preachers like Paul, but you're called to communicate the gospel. So what does it mean to communicate the gospel without manipulation, without spinning the truth, without spinning it in some way? Let me give you two thoughts here. And I think the best way to answer this is to look at how we can manipulate it. One way to be manipulative or manipulative in proclaiming the, the gospel is to emphasize the good parts of it and to de-emphasize or not speak about the hard parts of it. To speak about eternal life, to speak about purpose in life, but to kind of go light or not speak about sin and the offense of sin. Or to speak about the love of God, but not speak about the wrath of God or the justice of God. Uh, or it's, to, it's to, um, to speak about forgiveness without emphasizing repentance. Right? We're called to communicate the whole gospel and not spin it, not package it in a way that will get to an intended result. Right? That's manipulation. Do we want everyone to come to know Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we trust in the power of the cross to do that, not our, our, our lofty words or our lofty wisdom. Let me give you another thought here on how we can be manipulative with the proclamation of the gospel. And this would go with parents, to parents, to your children. One of the ways, and this is unconscious, that I think we can manipulate the gospel as we communicate it to our children is in an effort to produce good-behaving Christian children. You can fail to be honest about sin and temptation in an effort to shield our kids from sin and brokenness and the temptation towards it, we can almost just kind of shelve it and, and think that by shielding them from it, it's, it's going to protect them. And actually, it's just the opposite. Let me give you an example of this. When I did youth ministry in North Carolina years ago, I mentored a, a, a man who went off to college. And he was, he was raised in a Christian home. He went off to college. His first year of college, he went crazy. Okay, He went off the deep end. He partied. He lived a life that was just polar opposite to what he had lived in high school, certainly up through his senior year. Came home that summer. His parents were distraught. I met with him, and I sat down with him, and I will never, I will never forget what he told me. He said, Keith, I wish my parents would have told me that sin was fun. They had raised him, talking about the destructiveness of sin. True. The horror of sin, true. The wrongness of sin, absolutely true. But they never told him, you're gonna be tempted to do these things and when you do, it's gonna be pleasurable and enjoyable. I mean, why do we sin? It's not because it's miserable, right? There's a, there's a pleasure, it's a cheap pleasure and it's temporary and ultimately, yes, it's destructive, but there's a pleasure there. He said, I never knew that. And so when he, when, he, when he experienced it, he went, wow, this is the opposite of what I grew up with. And so he questioned the gospel. He questioned the Bible. And he just kind of put it behind him. And he pressed on in his life of rebellion. See, if the, if the birth of faith 
depends on manipulative communication methods or techniques, then the genuineness of a response is open to question. Proclaim the full gospel. What's the opposite of manipulation? It's trust. It's trusting in God's power. It's trusting in the power of the cross. That's how Paul ends. Look at verses four and five. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith, listen to this, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, which is what happens when we take the gospel and we manipulate it. We twist it, we turn it, we spin it. It becomes a message that depends on how we've spun it. But no, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We're called to trust in the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. The power of the cross to save you from your sin. Something you can't do on your own. The power of the cross to bring honor that your heart's longing for. That you can't achieve with any human effort. And the power of the cross to communicate authentically and honestly about the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to save. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you forgive us as a people from moving on from the centrality of the cross? Would you forgive us for being swept up into a more triumphant, positive and better living type religion. Oh, Father, would you plant us at the foot of the cross, recognizing that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, that we all come sinful and broken. And yet as we gaze on the cross and Jesus, what you went through to accomplish our salvation, in a form of execution in the first century that was so disgusting and so vile that it wouldn't even be talked about. Oh, Father, it brings us to such a deeper understanding of your love for us that your son, Jesus, would go through that in our place. That we might be saved. And that as Ephesians 2 says, that we might be raised and be seated in the heavenly, heavenly realms, in Christ, at your right hand, the place of honor. Father, we long for honor. We long for worth. We long for significance. And might we only find it in the power of the cross, in the power of the resurrection. And would you help us as a people to communicate this beautiful gospel winsomely, but authentically and truthfully. Father, we respond now in worship, to sing praises to you for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.